Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Fred Paul Show. Well, it's happening much quicker than we expected, even as recently as late last year. But funnily enough, some people still think it could happen even quicker. I'm talking, of course, about the tidal shift in attitudes about COVID vaccines, the adverse reactions to which are now beyond doubt and may one day lead to dramatic class action lawsuits with eye-watering potential payouts. We will look into some recent revelations about the vaccines and talk to one of Australia's bravest and most vindicated opponents to them. Plus, we will talk about the bugs some government agencies want to force us to eat, along with other nonsense from the ever-reliable mad world of woke warriors tonight on The Fred Paul Show. Now, there's a parable I've heard often lately about an engineer reading a newspaper. On the front page, there is a story about a war breaking out in a neighbouring country. The story says that diplomatic options have been exhausted and now the generals on both sides are amassing their troops on the border. The engineer thinks, well, this is a newspaper and they never get anything wrong because they only ever speak to experts. So it must be true. Then he turns the page and there's a story about a building collapsing because there were cracks in the basement. The engineer looks at the photo of the collapsed building and can clearly see that the problems were not in the basement, but the load on each floor being too much for the structure. What would these idiots know? They're just journalists, he thinks to himself. Then he turns the page to another story about the world ending because carbon dioxide is heating up the atmosphere and thinks, well, they must be right because they only ever speak to experts. The same applies to science. We went into the COVID pandemic with a faith in science that was amplified by our increasingly secular culture. If there's no God and therefore no preordained truth or meaning in this life, then all we have to understand how the world works are those earnest people in lab coats. After all, they'd invented all sorts of medicines and machines that made our lives easier. What's not to trust? Well, a lot. Scientists, it turns out, are only human. Who knew? 
they are prone to the same frailties as the rest of us. Frailties such as ambition, vanity, ignorance, vengeance, jealousy, narcissism, and of course, plain old greed. We now know that the advice we got about COVID vaccines was deeply compromised by all these human flaws and more. Even worse, the advice was sometimes given to us by people who knew that it was either wrong or unreliable. Author Naomi Wolf said last month that Pfizer knew in May of 2021 that their vaccine, quote, damaged the hearts of young, healthy minors and they kept going, unquote. And in November, a British regulator found Pfizer CEO Albert Borla had been misleading in a BBC broadcast about vaccinating children from December 2021. This week, Liberal MP Russell Broadbent told Parliament that a Queensland doctor had obtained confirmation via Freedom of Information that the Therapeutic Goods Administration last year investigated the deaths of nine people, one aged only seven, soon after receiving the COVID vaccine. Broadbent was alarmed that the TGA never published this information, even while hundreds of thousands of Australians lined up for their boosters. Neither the TGA nor the Federal Health Minister had so far replied to Broadbent's inquiries about it. On November, on November 11 last year, the New South Wales Health Department tweeted, quote, Sadly, COVID-19 itself has been associated with an increase in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and sudden deaths in young people. Associated with? That's a vague statement for a health bureaucracy, don't you think? Professor Karen Phelps, a former president of the Australian Medical Association who has a medical practice in Sydney's eastern suburbs and was briefly the local federal member of parliament, replied, quote, sudden deaths in young adults make me very sad too and motivated to encourage all governments to take decisive action to reduce COVID-19 transmission. In other words, sudden deaths were caused by COVID. The tweet immediately elicited vehement responses from people saying the vaccine, not the virus, was causing all these sudden deaths and various other injuries. But, and here's the disturbing bit, Phelps had good reason to know that already. Her partner experienced nerve pain within minutes of receiving her first shot, and the pain continued for months. Professor, Professor Phelps herself experienced breathlessness and irregular heartbeat after receiving her second shot. She divulged all this to a Senate inquiry in December, which my next guest, former Liberal MP Craig Kelly, says, one of the, says was one of the key turning points in the debate that has swung decisively towards those who, like Kelly, never trusted these vaccines. But Phelps deserves at least some credit. She is one of the few people in politics, medicine, or even indeed public life who have joined the vaccine skeptics. She says she and many others were cowed into silence by the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency, which said in March 2021, quote, 
there is no place for anti-vaccination message in messages in professional health practice and any promotion of anti-vaccination claims may be subject to regulatory action. Any promotion of anti-vaccination statements or health advice which contradicts the best available scientific evidence or seeks to actively undermine the natural immunization, national immunization campaign is not supported by national boards and may be in breach of the codes of conduct." Unquote. Well, even if the scientific evidence APRA was relying on was the best available, and there is ample evidence that it was not, it still wasn't good enough to justify a nationwide rollout of vaccines, let alone telling the nation's doctors, who were even then seeing an alarming number of adverse reactions in their patients, to keep quiet or face having their medical license cancelled. Some politicians are starting to admit their mistakes. In Germany, health minister and strict lockdown advocate Karl Lauterbach now admits some of his previous policies were idiocy and that school closures were a big mistake. In August last year, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak admitted that, quote, we shouldn't have empowered the scientists in the way we did. Unquote. Who's next, you reckon? Will Victorian Premier Dan Andrews admit that the world's longest and arguably most destructive lockdown, which caused a spike in suicides and business bankruptcies, was unnecessary? Will any of our medical bureaucrats confess that it wasn't our health they were worried about when they shut down entire cities, but instead we're getting a strange James Bond villain type thrill from exercising so much tyrannical power? Let's get one of the bravest and now most vindicated opponents of the vaccines and lockdowns, former Liberal MP Craig Kelly, on to talk about it. Craig, thanks for joining me. Now, first, I want to get a picture of what it was like inside the Liberal Party in early 2021, while you, as a member of parliament, were fighting to discuss treatments for COVID as openly, as honestly as possible. What was it like in the party at the time, mate? Look, it was certainly a, um, uh, one of the greatest disappointing experiences of my lifetime. Uh, I signed up uh, you know, as a Liberal member because of, you know, they put out the statement, what we believe. And it's basically the freedom of the individual to call his own shots free of government interference in his life. They were the principles that I, I, I believed in. And when it came to COVID, we were throwing out, we were trampling upon every one of those principles that we held sacred, uh, from freedom of speech to freedom of movement, uh, uh, every single one of them, uh, you know, about the idea that you actually cannot be dictated to by the state about what medical interventions that you undergo. But what, were you the only one in the party room arguing for this? Defending these principles? George, I'll give George Christensen was, uh, I'll give George Christensen credit. George was as vocal uh, as, as I was, but uh, George knew that he was going to retire uh, at, at the subsequent election and wasn't going to challenge the next election. Um, Lou O'Brien uh, gave us some support on one of the votes, but um, otherwise there was crickets. 
Were there uh, any, were, did you have any colleagues who were saying privately, good on you, Craig? As... Oh, oh. <laughs> there were a few of them, like uh, you'd walk around the corridor of the Parliament House and you know, most people would sort of like look at you and sort of turn away because they couldn't eyeball you. Right. Greg Hunt couldn't eyeball me because he knew that I knew that what he was doing was wrong. And a lot of other colleagues would come up to me in the corridors and whisper, you know, they'd slap you. you know, they, they, first of all, they'd make sure no one else was looking. Right? And they'd come up and they'd go, oh, good on you, Craig, good on you. you know, For goodness sake, won't you bloody well speak out then? Yeah. You yeah. know, oh, no, no, oh, I can't say anything. Because of, oh, you know. yeah. um, How tense did it, it get was, in the party room? Did it get tense? Uh, not really, to be honest, because I was the only one speaking up. I, I'd sort of speak up and... Um, you know, and everyone sort of put their heads down and, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, he's at it again sort of thing, you know, talking about things like the, the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, you know, that uh, that should have been a fundamental pillar of what we believe in, that uh, you know, when the doctor's surgery door closes, that you can have a frank discussion with your doctor, your doctor uses his medical skill and expertise, he abides by the Hippocratic Oath of what he thinks does, any medical intervention you then undergo is done with a free an informed consent, yeah. and that was all tossed yeah. out. All Whatever t- happened to that? All tossed out the window. Now, you know, d- like d- a, but just someone, go on. Someone, so someone in uh, you know in, in Canberra, someone sitting in a desk in Canberra that doesn't see patients uh, knows knows better, and it was fundamentally opposite to everything that I believe was the men's vision of the Liberal Party. So uh, when uh, the Prime Minister moved uh, uh, what was effectively uh, um, a criticism motion of me in Parliament uh, where he got up after question time and uh, uh, spoke against me and said, oh, you know, he's doing it all wrong, I disagree with him, da-da-da-da-da. And then then Albanese's opposition leader did exactly the same thing. Um, I was left with two alternatives, either to shut up or I had to resign from the party. And, um, you know, my my obligation, uh, you know, when you swear an oath, um, you know, when you go down and swear that oath, um, you know, to take on a member of parliament, I, I wasn't going to shut up, so I had no alternative. Well, you mentioned that the party seemed to uh, abandon some very fundamental principles at the time, but just emotionally or sort of in your own mind, what was it like? You must have felt like you were in an Orwellian nightmare. <laughs> it was, truly. I, I, when I, when um, the issues of COVID came along in late uh, 2019, uh, it was very clear that this would be the biggest political issue that I'd have to face as a, a member of parliament. So I made sure I wanted to know everything I possibly could. I wanted to listen to as many expert opinions as I could hear from both sides of the argument. I wanted to read as many uh, you know, papers uh, as I could and get briefed on it as deeply as I could so that when I was uh, you know, making a contributing to debate, and making decisions on this, and I could do so with the, you know, with, it's always, your knowledge is never going to be perfect, but to do so with the best knowledge I possibly could. And, and everything I saw was, and, and was listening to, was the exact opposite of what the official narrative was. I can, the first thing that really got me going was, um, someone sent me a, it was a recording that the late, uh, great Dr. Zelenko uh, put together. And he was talking about, uh, from first-hand experience as a treating doctor, how he was having great success at keeping people out of hospital and saving lives using a combination of drugs, which was hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and uh, azithromycin as an antibiotic. 
at the time. And this seemed to me, you know, as not medical personal, this seems to be great. Here we've got like a potential, you know, this is a potential solution to this problem. This is something that can potentially keep people alive. This is fantastic news. This must be shared widely. So before I did it, I wanted to check that this wasn't some just crazy random person. So I, I looked, is there, is there a Dr. Zelenko? Uh, is there a Dr. Zelenko in New York? Is there an old picture of a Dr. Zelenko in New York that looks like the picture of this, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Zelenko? And I, I, so I checked all that, did all my checks, and I posted it to Facebook. And now a couple of days later, a journalist from ABC rings me, and she says, are you going to apologise? I'm going, what are you talking about? I said, apologise for what? She says... Facebook have uh, taken down that Dr. Zelenko thing and said it's misinformation and you posted it and so you've posted misinformation, so you should apologise. I'm going, hang on a minute. How does someone at Facebook know that a medical doctor giving his first-hand, giving details of his first-hand experiences using medical treatments is misinformation. How is this misinformation? This is this guy's opinion as a medical doctor of what he's experiencing. I said, and the journalist didn't get it. I said, you are missing the story here. I said, the story is that you've got big tech, as in Facebook, being a non-medical person, censoring what could be potentially a cure or a safety treatment or a medical protocol that can save thousands or tens of thousands of Australian lives, and that is being censored. And the ABC didn't get it. No, Facebook were like this ministry of truth. If they said it was misinformation, it was misinformation. And we had to bow down to the gods of uh, Facebook. How Um, did so many people become so uh, eager to partake in censorship? What was your take on that? Fear. It was fear to start with. Um, uh, You know, you read through some of the great... um, uh, you know, speeches of freedom of speech. I think what was Menzies' great quote, he says, I think it was, today's truth is often tomorrow's error. And that's why the process of free speech, the, the rough and tumble of the debate, uh, must go on in the search of that truth. And, uh, you know, even what was the quote of uh, George Washington, the first US president? He said, yeah, if freedom of speech is taken away, like lambs will be led to the slaughter. Uh, so that, to me, the fundamental principle of, of, of free speech and open debate is how you reach the truth. You want to, you want to hear the other side's debate. Yeah. You want to hear the other side's argument. You want to, because firstly, what that does, that allows you to firstly think, well, have I missed anything? Is there something that I've missed? And it, it often aims you to reframe your thoughts about an issue, often with greater clarity and greater strength. If you hear the other side, you can think, no, I can see where they're coming from, but they've got it totally wrong. And sometimes the other side has some... Uh, so this is why the free free speech and free debate must go on. But we had this this shocking level uh, uh, of censorship, which was... And I think where it came... Remember where it came from? This was all... Whenever you doubt something, follow the money. That's the old <laughs> axiom, and it's always true. Follow the money. Now, remember, if... When you look at this, right, when the, um, the COVID uh, came along as a pandemic, this was the potentially for big pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer uh, and Moderna and AstraZeneca. This was manna from heaven for them. This was a multi-billion dollar, like hundreds of billions of dollars 
potential economic opportunity that they could make. The chief, all the chief executives and big shareholders of these companies stood to make billions of dollars through promoting the vaccines. Now, the way they would promote them, they would market them, they would get the approvals for them as emergency use authorization, which is the term in the US, or what we call in Australia, provisional approval. Now, the only way they can get that provisional approval if there's no other available treatment. So if oh, hence the, hence the, the vilification of, of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Okay. So ivermectin hydroxychloroquine, right, which were cheap, off-patent drugs that had been used for decades that you could buy for dollars. I think ivermectin was in, in or hydro they were talking about cents mm. to manufacture this stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was like a, a, a roadblock to this to them making billions of dollars dollar yes yes to make billions of dollars yeah so yeah. they had hundreds of billions of dollars of incentive yeah to do everything they could well craig we may we may yet see people. sorry to interrupt but we may yet see them uh, pay the price for that i mean the history of of the pharmaceutical industry is that they often take these calculated risks with uh, unproven drugs and the fines that they pay are somewhat less you know, according to their calculations, that are slightly less than the profits they make from it. But I think in this case, they might have miscalculated. But just getting back to what's happened lately, how far has the pendulum swung towards people like yourself, in your opinion? Look, it, it, firstly, the data, the data and the scientific evidence and the expert opinion was always on my side. And I was never sort of quoting, oh, this is Craig Kelly's opinion. I was always quoting, you know, this is the opinion of someone like Dr. Peter McCullough. Or this is the opinion of uh, emeritus professor uh, Robert Clancy, uh, you know, probably the father of immuno immunology in this country. Or this is what the, the data from this peer-reviewed paper said. That was I was quoting that. That data has always, always been on our side. And every single day that that body of data, that body of evidence builds. Every single day, there's more evidence coming out. We had Carl uh, Stefanovic on the um, the breakfast show uh, the other day saying, "I'm over." What well, he said, "I'm done with the vaccines." Now, that would have been inconceivable only a few months ago that that would be allowed to be put to air or let alone someone with the profile of Stefanovic would be able to say that without it being cut, you know, someone pressing the kill button on it. And Professor Karen air. Phelps was a turning point as well, wasn't she? Well, Professor Karen Phelps, uh, someone who actually is, was a constituent in my old electorate, someone that was vilifying me for talking out and trying to put out like a warning, like, you know, these things have no long-term safety data. Uh, you know, the adverse events data is, is, is very concerning. Right? That's what I was saying. She was vilifying me about that. She was running around my electorate at election time promoting candidates that wanted to have compulsory injections of my community when she knew at the time she had been injured by those vaccines and her partner catastrophically injured. She knew that they were not safe. Well, to, I mean, safe. yes, that's true. And safe. to her credit, I mean, what she said previously uh, is, is, you know, probably not, uh, wasn't helpful. Um, well, that, but, that, to her... but that shows, that also shows the turnaround. Exactly. That shows how things are flipping. Yeah. Uh, how things yeah. are flipping. Now, Craig, but, and, but Craig, and, there are still some people who remain convinced that the vaccines are effective and didn't do any harm. Why are people still hanging on to this? Well, look, firstly, um, these people have been subject to the, probably one of the most 
unrelenting propaganda campaigns in world history. Uh, you've been drummed into, firstly, you've been scared witless. You've been scared silly with images of people dying and, uh, you know, uh, Dan Andrews and uh, Berit Jekyllian coming onto the you know, the TV every morning and reading out, the, you know, the, the deaths the deaths overnight, right, that were scaring people uh, uh, witless. Um, you have that. Um, you know, once people get scared like that, it's very easy to manipulate them. And then, uh, so this was sold as a, a magic potion. Um, and then on top of that, you've got simple human nature. No one likes to admit that they have been tricked. That's why a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, um, scammers, financial scammers are so successful because they will scam people financially and the person is often so embarrassed that they've allowed themselves to be scammed that they won't report it to the police. Yeah, that's a similar thing here. What well, well, uh, and people. speaking also of, of of human nature, I thought we witnessed the uh, the revelation that some of our political leaders have very distinct tyrannical tendencies. I mean, the, you know, it wasn't just the, the sort of uh, the, the, the profit motive in the medical industry and the compliance among doctors. It was that politicians actually revealed themselves to be quite tyrannical. Look, it's, um, it just shows there's a very fine line between a civilised society and, and anarchy. Um, and it's not only the politicians that showed they want to be tyrannical, it was... Uh, Throughout our police force, uh, throughout many companies, um, you saw one of like the the mask totalitarians that would run around and you know, uh, you know demand other people uh, wear masks, even though like, there was no science whatsoever. In fact, the science now says that masks were useless, uh, useless at best. Yep. Um, there's there's this. I remember uh, years ago, I, I used to do some work with a company in uh, Dubai, and they were. Yugoslavian people, and they told me that um, uh, it was in Belgrade when uh, NATO attacked. Them. I remember the description. They said people turned into wolves, and and I sort of thought she said it's amazing how quickly that your society, how how fragile, um, you know, the the society and the civility that we have actually is. And you could see that by COVID. You could yeah, see well, I think, people, well, sorry to interrupt you, but I think one of the manifestations of that was during when the vaccines really were widely accepted, people who were holding out against the vaccines, the, the supporters of vaccines were wishing them painful deaths. Whereas now, now that the tide's turned, people like you and I, who always were sceptical about the vaccines, we don't want people to die of COVID and we don't want people to die from the vaccines. We just want a solution so that society can get on and we can all get on with our lives. Well, on my side, I was always arguing. Remember, we had, firstly, we had treatments being blocked. So we had originally, so we had, on one hand, you, have, uh, you had someone like Dr. Zelenka saying, hey, look, I've got all the success. Right? You also had other doctors like uh, Dr. Brian Tyson in California, in Southern California. He has a big clinic down there. And he was using hydroxychloroquine. He was using the Zelenko's protocols, and he was recording his results. And he was re he was having like, you know, like in in the society around like you know, um, a huge percentages of people going to hospital, and twenty percent of them were dying once they got to hospital. Right? These people were having none of the. I think the latest numbers he gave me, uh, Dr. Brian Tyson, ten thousand patients he's had through his clinic. Right, and I think it was six hospitalizations out of ten thousand. 
So I'm saying 10,000 people coming to him, I've got COVID, I'm not well, what do I do? He gives them the treatment with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, now he includes vitamin D and vitamin C and zinc and other, other bits and pieces. It's the protocols have expanded as the knowledge gets better. Yeah. He's had just six people go to hospital. And he's had, he's had those that he were able to get to and treat within the first five days. He's had zero deaths. So it was always about trying to make those treatments available to people in Australia. And yet we had, in Australia, we had not only do we have the TGA blocking hydroxychloroquine and then blocking ivermectin, so denying Australians access to a medical treatment that evidence shows can save their lives. Yep. Like the thing, just, yeah. just stop and think about yep. the criminality of that. Right? Yep. Here we have low-cost, off-label uh, drugs right, with decades of safety data given to billions of people, drugs that have, uh, in Ivermectin's case, that have won a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Right? And we've got the, the, the doctors around the world are swearing by that have been used in other countries. Australians have been denied access to these things. Yeah, well, Craig, we've run out of, I'm sorry, Craig, but we've run out of time, but we will see some pretty interesting legal consequences to this. As you and I know, That's there are some uh, class action lawsuits gaining momentum right now. But for right for now, Craig, good on you for standing your ground. Uh, it would have been very difficult um, and uh, it, it, in fact, cost you your seat. But I wish you luck in the uh, New South Wales election next month. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Fred. Great to be with you. Now, one of the defining characteristics of modern governments and bureaucracies is that they keep foisting things on us that we never asked for. Did you know, for example, that the Reserve Bank of Australia, in a consortium with some academics and finance executives, will this year do a limited test run of its own digital currency? It announced it in August, conveniently three months after a federal election. It was not mentioned during the election campaign and the new federal government has said little or nothing about it. There are many reasons to think that this could be one day commandeered into a Chinese-style social credit system in which the government controls how you spend your money depending on how good you've been lately. Given the tyrannical tendencies revealed by our governments during the so-called COVID pandemic, it's prudent for us to be wary of anything that increases the government's power over us. But were you asked about this? No, because despite the platitudes they occasionally make about our precious democracy, politicians could not care less about your opinion. There are now fewer and fewer areas of our lives where the government doesn't intrude uninvited from the substandard internet infrastructure it forces us to use, to the cars we drive, and the unpatriotic fiction about colonialism and the environment, it laughably labels education in our schools. And here is another area of our lives where the government is now reaching levels of intrusion that two generations ago would have been dismissed as absurd. Official influence over the food we eat has been increasing for decades, evolving from the scare campaign about saturated fats in the 1980s to the proposals to introduce punitive taxes on the ingredient that sneakily replaced saturated fats in supermarkets, sugar. You would think that bureaucratic busybodies would learn from that 
that trying to control people will almost certainly have counterproductive consequences. And besides, who are they to tell us what to eat anyway? But no, the food fascists are back. And this time, it's not just your health they are purportedly concerned about, but the health of the planet. In 2013, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization published a book called Edible Insects, Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security. Its argument was that there will be 9 billion people on the planet by 2050 and, in typical UN-style pessimism, concluded that traditional ways of feeding people would be inadequate. Quote, to meet the food and nutrition challenges of today and tomorrow, what we eat and how we produce it needs to be re-evaluated. Inefficiencies need to be rectified and food waste reduced. We need to find new ways of growing food. When an ideological bureaucrat in some UN office hundreds of kilometres from the nearest farm resolves to find new ways of growing food, well, you just know that the answer is going to be as ridiculously anti-human as it is radical. And so the idea of feeding people bugs became a semi-official policy at the United Nations. Of course, the primary argument is to save the environment. Insects require less feed than, for example, cows and chickens. For every kilogram of fattened crickets ready for market, for example, a farmer needs only two kilograms of feed. And what sort of feed can farmers use? Quote, insects can be raised on organic side streams, the book said, including human and animal waste. Well, the proponents of eating bugs repeatedly admit that the idea is already icky and disgusting enough to most people. So they are probably waiting for us to get used to them before they eventually switch over to the cheaper versions grown adjacent to urban sewerage plants. The long-term plan to convert kids has already started with 1,000 Australian schools offering snacks that contain insects to students. Although it's 10 years old, the opening assertion of the UN's book about the inability of current farming practices to feed a growing world population is frequently repeated. It's been blithely cut and pasted onto the website of the Insect Protein Association of Australia. And it was also repeated by an entomologist who calls himself Bry the Fly Guy, real name Brian Lessard, on ABC TV in 2021. Quote, by 2050, we're going to have to feed 9.7 billion people with the same limited resources we have today. Insects are a really sustainable way of producing high quality protein for us to eat to meet that challenge. To which ABC TV host Michael Rowland gormlessly added, so talk about sustainability. Obviously, large parts of the world face food shortages in the decades ahead, unquote. As with most catastrophic platitudes spouted by overpaid ABC presenters, this doesn't bear the slightest scrutiny. Here is a graph of the world's population since 1960. It's gone from 3 billion to just under 8 billion in 60 years. 
So we are almost at that 9 billion yardstick the UN said would lead to widespread cricket farming. So with that many mouths to feed and with such limited resources in the world, that must have led to widespread death and famine, right? Well, let's have a look. Here is the average life expectancy of all people on Earth at birth from 1960 to 2022. So no adverse relationship to population growth there then. Let's have a look at infant mortality rate around the world, another indication of the health and nourishment of humanity. It has gone from more than 120 per thousand to just a little over 20 today. And the top two lines of this graph represent the world's cereal crop yields since 1960, which increase at the same rate as world population, the straight purple line in the middle. But notice that line dragging along the bottom of the graph. That is the amount of land used to produce that steadily increasing quantity of cereals. That same amount of land increases its yield because humans, being cleverer than the United Nations and leftist media organisations like the ABC give them credit for, were able to devise more efficient ways to farm the same amount of land. Specifically, fertilisers and pesticides enabled crops to grow quicker and farm machinery made it economically viable. The word the insect lobbyists keep touting is protein. Insects can be dried and ground into a powder, which makes them more palatable. But the selling point is that they are nutritious. This may be true, and protein is an important nutrient, but this is where the story becomes just a little bit suspicious. One of the world's best and cheapest sources of protein is eggs. A boiled egg is about 13% protein, which is twice the proportion in the cricket powder you can already buy now in Woolworths. Eggs are also more versatile as a food. You can use them in everything from hamburgers to pavlovas, and they will add to the taste, not just the nutrition. But we'll get back to the culinary aspect in a minute. Around the world, egg farms are now mysteriously catching fire. Last week, a chicken farm in New Zealand burned down, killing 50,000 birds. Eggs were already expensive and difficult to buy in New Zealand, thanks to a program started 10 years ago to phase out battery farming. Another fire in Connecticut killed 100,000 birds. And in one month last year, March, 2.4 million chickens were killed in five separate farm fires in the United States. This is on top of 58 million being destroyed because of avian flu and various other fires at processing plants for other types of food in the United States that seriously disrupted supply chains at a time when inflation was causing enough headaches for consumers. These disasters are of little concern to the mainstream media because most inner city journalists decided long ago that conventional farmers were not cleverly feeding the world, but instead were using toxic chemicals to destroy natural countryside. How else might we feed the world? Well, that's where the bugs come in. 
Arguably the most vilified farmers in the world, at least by their own government, are in the Netherlands, where new restrictions on the by-production of nitrogen, an unavoidable part of farming, will in effect lead to the forced repatriation of some farms. But far from being diabolical, Dutch farmers are among the world's greatest producers of food. The Netherlands might be only two thirds the size of Tasmania, but it is the second biggest exporter of agricultural products by value in the world. Its output is extraordinary. It produces 4 million cows, 13 million pigs and 104 million chickens a year and is Europe's biggest meat exporter. It punches way above its weight in the vegetable market as well by producing most crops in, greenhouse, in, in greenhouses, which use less fertilizer and use 10% of the land other farmers require to produce the same quantity. And in some cases, about a 50th of the water. The Dutch farmers have been protesting against their government's new policies since October 2019. One of the places where they held their protests was at Waheningen University, research from which they believed was behind the government's restrictions. Waheningen is also one of the UN's main collaborators on, you guessed it, insects which the UN describes as at the forefront of fundamental and applied research on insects as food and feed. Vaheningen is also a major recipient of donations from Bill Gates, who is the largest owner of farmland in the United States. Gates is also a doyen of the World Economic Forum, which would probably challenge the UN in a bug-eating contest if their delegates' taste buds weren't so delicately accustomed to the caviar and champagne they gorge on at Davos every year. The sudden increase in fires destroying traditional farming methods and the new push for us to eat bugs might be a coincidence. But the efforts to hobble traditional farming and traditional food are not. In October, Australia became one of 120 countries to sign up to US President Joe Biden's idea to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. The list has since grown to 150 countries. The pledge is essentially to find ways of stopping cow flatulence, either by reducing herds or adding expensive additives to feed the reduced gases, uh, additives to feed to reduce gases. The list of countries include Singapore, which produces the equivalent of 4,250 kilotons of CO2 in methane, but the list doesn't include China, which produces 1.176 million kilotons, or Russia, which produces 684,000 kilotons. This pledge will add costs and limitations to Australian farmers, while their Chinese and Russian counterparts will hear ka-ching and laugh every time one of their cows blows the old dog trumpet on its way to the abattoir. The month after climate change minister Chris Bowen and agriculture minister Murray Watt signed up to the methane pledge, 
they also signed up to the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda on Agriculture. Watt's statement at the time will send chills down your spine if you think the purpose of agriculture is to produce food. Quote, the endorsement of this goal is a timely message to the international community of our government's priorities. Support for this agenda will further build Australia's international reputation as a nation committed to sustainable agriculture production and investment in climate resilient agriculture production. Well, notice there is nothing about producing the best possible food at the best price and for the greatest profit or about feeding the nation. This government's priority is to signal its environmental virtues to the world, regardless of the cost incurred by ordinary Australians. Which brings me back to the Reserve Bank's plan to experiment with its own digital currency. This is another thing all the elites around the world want to impose on us without really asking us if we want it. And they'll do it too whether we want it or not. One day, these two policies will be used in unison. If you've bought your quota of methane-emitting meat for the week, do you really think the government would refrain from using its own digital currency to force you to buy insects from now till Sunday? It's for the good of the environment, you know. You could complain about it all you want, but once a government has that much power, all you're going to hear is crickets. Now, let's get back to the culinary aspect of this. William Sitwell is the food critic for The Telegraph in London, who once fell foul of the sanctimonious mob for making disparaging remarks about vegans. He also wrote a book called The Restaurant, A History of Eating Out. So he is well placed to comment on this global phenomenon of bug eating. He joins me now from England. William, welcome. Hi, Fred. Very nice to see you. William, I've just spoken about the political aspect of this issue, but let's talk about the cultural one. Does the eating of insects have any place whatsoever in a civilised urban society? <laughs> I think there are some people who think um, that they should be compulsory <laughs> because if you wear your, you know, your ethics and your morals on your sleeve and you're very worried about the planet, I think there's no question that the most sustainable foodstuffs are insects that live on food waste. Um, there can be nothing better than that. And so, you know, the impact of the environment is is minimal. Um, the only problem is really the sort of flavor, really, and the fact that here in the Western world, uh, we're a bit squeamish about these sorts of things. Like the only bugs that I like to eat are the ones that begin with L and are spelled O-B-S-T-E-R, <laughs> and crawl around on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> I'm very happy to meet crustacean, but um, yes. I think my kind of own anthropomorphic and sensibilities forbid me from eating them. I'm like most people, I'm, I'm a bit squeamish. For me, you know, food is all about pleasure. When I go on holiday, even well, even in normal life, you know, I look forward to breakfast, to lunch, lunch, to dinner. It's, uh, it's, it's how I color my life. 
Well, and then this when is there what... are bugs being strangled in front of me, I, you know, I'm someone who doesn't particularly look forward to it, but I completely understand why people get obsessed, and I, and I, you know, I get it. But the I don't two, well, the two, the two them. things that people uh, use as pro- the proponents of it say. One, as you mentioned, it's good for the environment. And two, mostly it's a pretty good, reliable source of protein. But like you said, where's the pleasure? That, that's, that's probably the most important aspect of food, isn't it? I have had a, um, a grasshopper dipped in gold leaf presented on an <laughs> avocado canapé. And it did give, give me a little bit of a crunch. And these are things that, you know, you get in sort of South America. Um, where the eating of bugs is a bit more familiar. Um, I was in a a Japanese restaurant in London a couple of years ago, and there was a sashimi course, and I was offered um, two little strips of uh, raw fish. I can't remember what the fish were, alongside what were called wood ants. And the idea of the wood ants was that they gave a little sort of lemon balm hue and a slight crunch, a bit of texture to the sashimi. But... uh, (laughs) You know, I ate them. You, so you could dip the fish and you got a bit of ant onto your fish. But um, I didn't really want to go back for more. Well, the people who are advocating bugs, mostly from the, if we can describe them as such, from the left side of politics, so more inclined to be environmental and, and uh, not, per, not perhaps, you know, so finely attuned to the joys of life as people like you and I, but it, it, this presents them with a dilemma, William. Will vegetarians eat bugs? How, where does that, how do they fit in? It's a very good question. There's a lot of dilemmas, a lot of uh, moral dilemmas that vegetarians and vegans um, are faced with, particularly when you look at sustainable options. If you, if you accept the fact that eating beef and certainly beef farming in mass numbers, as it is in some parts of America, is a bad thing, then if you look at alternative sources of protein, for example, growing meat in a laboratory. Now, if you can grow meat in a laboratory, therefore, it satisfies the vegans and the vegetarians who don't approve of the idea of killing uh, animals. Uh, If you can do it without too much use of natural resources, i.e. water and other energy, if you can do those things, then um, is this a meat that becomes acceptable to a vegetarian because there is no semblance of cruelty? Um, So there are lots of problems, you know, and I think if you're, you know, if you're a moralizing vegan, then you really should be leading the way and eating bugs. Um, You know, there's no use just wearing a hair shirt and turning off the central heating and throwing away your mobile phone um, and just um, sucking on turnips. Uh, Except, of course, we know that's not what vegans do because they eat huge amounts of processed food that travels across the world, is created in laboratories and factories and is full of all sorts of things that I wouldn't feed my own children or my own dog. But they do find themselves in a bit of a dilemma because they should be leading the charge about bugs because, um, I mean... You know, particularly when you get the argument about climate change. And I have to say, I think I've got, you know, there are, I think I'm slightly suspicious about the, the argument, particularly when it start, starts to moralize. The problem also, I suppose, is, you know, do, do can you prove that an insect has a, you know, is sentient? Um, 
when you eat a roach or whatever it is, <laughs> or, or a worm, yes. or a, or a, or, a, or a locust, um, does it hurt the locust? Um, I think there's certainly some scientific arguments that say that certain kinds of crustacea don't feel pain. Uh, they don't get emotional <laughs> when they're being boiled. Um, so I think uh, the jury's out to a certain extent. But um, I think if you are a crusading foodie moralist, where it's all about sustainability and environmentalism, then you should be only eating bugs and having a miserable time doing it. <laughs> having said that, yes. I have been to food festivals and there are quite well-known, there's a group of quite you know, uh, well-known people now in this country who cook bugs at food festivals and they invite the audience to taste them and so on. And they're growing in popularity. My view actually is that the vast proportion of people who feed themselves day after day on fast food, burgers, and they don't care where their food comes from, I think we should at least put 50% of insect protein into those burgers um, uh, because I don't see the point in making it 100% beef if you don't really care where your food comes from in the first place. So I think fast food could learn a, a little bit about this, um, you know, this way of eating. Yes. Is it, is it possible that in any way that bugs might one day actually be tasty and indulgent and served in five-star restaurants? I think that bug cooks would tell you they already are tasty um, and possibly indulgent. I mean, there's certainly a, a, a certain kind of crunch to them. I wouldn't, I, you know, there are some people who say that in years to come, we'll look back on the idea of killing animals for slaughter as uh, an extraordinary thing to do now that we can grow meat in laboratories. Um, I, I won't pay lip service to that because to me, it's the life of an animal. I don't mean that in a cruel way that lends itself to the way it's 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 eaten because you know you can you can um as a farmer and i know farmers who love their cattle who almost who massage their haunches to improve the quality of the beef who feed them wonderful grass they get a wonderful life and i think that um you know the life that an animal has does lend itself to the flavor and it, and the story of that now, this may be gruesome beyond belief to a vegan or a vegetarian, but I think it does make a difference. I like to know where my animals, my birds were raised, how they were killed, um, what the process was, because there's more of a story. In as much as I'm excited to see the uh, purple head of an asparagus pop out of the soil and that journey from seed or root crown to harvesting to into the pan, and then, you know, a bit of butter, make sure we serve it a little bit al dente, who knows, a little shaving of Parmesan on it. Um, all those things matter. The provenance of food matters to me. Now, what's the provenance of a bug living out there on a bit of waste, on a bit of composting uh, old uh, cabbage? Maybe for some people that's, uh, that's all they need. Yeah, this is being introduced at a time when culinary standards are rising constantly. Yet the, you know, a lot of the proponents of bugs are suggesting that we abandon that to pursue, to eat bugs instead. Is, are, we, are we really being asked to abandon centuries of culinary evolution, William? Listen, people can ask people to do things all the time. Um, but I think the most important thing for us is to accentably live uh, modestly and moderately with lots of immoderate, immodest behavior when it's affordable and of necessity, and we need a, a little bit of luxury. Um, 
I don't think just because people preach that we should eat bugs that it's going to suddenly uh, transform the way that we the way that we live our daily lives. There are, you know, what I found interesting is that, particularly in London, now you might think that veganism had swept the nation. There's been actually a surge in the number of steakhouses, grills, in young people who take great interest in in meat and in great cuts of meat. So I think, um, you know, the vegan bubble may have slightly burst. I think that uh, a lot of vegan ranges that you see in supermarkets have not been very successful. So I think there's a, they, you know, I think they over-index in terms of the noise they make. I think they are very vocal. But it and would certainly be... When they're... Sorry. So, uh, well, I was just going to say, it would be unwise, though, not to be wary of the new authoritarianism in our governments. And a lot of governments, a lot of politicians and uh, academics and bureaucrats are behind this because they think it's going to save the environment. I'm referring to eating bugs again. Do you think governments will be tempted to coerce us into eating bugs soon? Listen, governments can't even stop us smoking. <laughs> governments can't really temper our love of alcohol, no matter how much we get lectured by chief medical officers. Um, governments can't really stop us driving too fast. Um, I think there comes a point where, you know, governments uh, have to step back and realize that the nanny state isn't necessarily something that we all want. Um, and I think, you know, these things ebb and flow. Um, governments that are driven by, you know, uh, you know the, the sort of woke doctrine might think they have a, a you know an opportunity to glow and bask in the light of this kind of kind of cultural um, uh, hysteria uh, but i think that most people on this planet will uh, will ignore it and i think if a government called for uh, compulsory eating of bugs <laughs> they'd fairly quickly be uh, thrown out of office well. when it came to actually putting your name in the ballot box so uh, i'm not worried about it i don't think uh, in my lifetime, or indeed, I don't think for another millennia, are we going to be dictated to by a government that says we must eat grasshoppers or else. <laughs> or cockroaches or crickets for that matter. Wonderful talking to you, William. Thanks so much for your time. Great pleasure, Fred. Thank you. That's William Sitwell, the author of The Restaurant, A History of Dining Out, and the food critic for The Daily Telegraph in England. Now, before I go, there is a lesson for Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in the resignation this week by Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. As head of the Scottish Nationalist Party, Nicola Sturgeon is perennially associated with one fundamental policy, Scottish independence. It remains one of her party's core objectives, even though the idea was put to the people in a referendum in 2014 and a decisive 55% rejected it. Sturgeon said at the time that the vote put the issue to bed, but in her mind, it never did. She should have got the message during the 2016 Brexit referendum when Scots voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. This concurred with the rejection of independence because Scotland leaving Britain would also have meant reapplying to join the EU. Nevertheless, as recently as last November, Sturgeon was still trying to find ways of holding another referendum, which was in fact blocked by the British Supreme Court. 
To Sturgeon, the will of the people was secondary to her personal passion project. Her popularity had been dropping steadily from 37% two years ago to 26% the day she quit. But here's the interesting bit. It wasn't her obsession with independence that brought her down, but her determination to push the woke transgender issue. Specifically, it was the case of a male rapist who claimed to be female and was sent to a female prison before Sturgeon intervened and sent the man back to a male prison. Sturgeon tied herself in knots trying to defend her policy to recognise the assumed gender of transgender people while denying this prisoner exactly that. It was a vivid expose of the madness and misplaced authoritarianism of so-called progressive politicians. And this was the main reason she resigned this week. And here is where Albo might like to take note. It is an unfortunate reality at the moment that politicians seem to get away with deeply flawed grand visions, which in Albo's case is to reach net zero by replacing perfectly good coal and gas powered electricity generators with windmills and solar power a policy that will destroy our economy just as certainly as the sun sets in the west and the wind stops blowing after a storm. The fact that the idiocy of these ideas never quite penetrates the, ele the electorate explains the hubris many politicians exude these days. But that doesn't mean they're invulnerable. Nicola Sturgeon has demonstrated that the sheer insanity of identity politics can cause more political damage than even the most unpopular grand vision. And what identity politics idea has Albo hitched his ute up to? Well, that would be the indigenous voice to parliament. One day, Albo is going to be cornered and forced to explain how the voice will stop women and children being raped in outback communities. So far, he has avoided this question, but he can't avoid it forever. And when he finally answers it, his garbled, evasive, illogical response will be the turning point in his prime ministership, just as the relatively trivial issue of transgenderism was for Sturgeon. Well, that's all from me. See you next Monday at eight o'clock. Good night.